chapter 8. I had mentioned Wednesday during our prayer time, we looked at the end of verse number 8 in, in this chapter, that I knew starting um, Pastor Kimbrough was going to be gone for four Sundays, and so I knew that there were eight main messages and then prayer meeting, and I planned to do all of those out of the book of Zechariah, and I knew that there was no way to finish the book of Zechariah in only eight sermons. And so we have dealt with most of the visions. I'm going to leave off the last three of those visions, uh, skipping that and going here to chapter 8 really is our uh, something of a, a concluding message, although again this evening we'll be in Zechariah. Uh, we'll look at chapter 13 for our communion time together, and that verse that tells us that there is a fountain opened for sin and for uncleanness. Very appropriate text for us to consider as we come to the Lord's table this evening. Uh, but for this morning, I want us to look at the first 17 verses of Zechariah chapter 8. So, Zechariah chapter 8, we'll begin our reading here in verse number 1. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, There shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in mine eyes? Saith the Lord of hosts. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, ye that hear in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before these days there was no hire for man, nor any hire for beast, neither was there any place in him that went out, or I'm sorry, any peace to him that went out or came in because of the affliction. For I said all men, every one against his neighbor. But now... I will not be unto the residue of this people as in the former days, saith the Lord of hosts. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, and the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And it shall come to pass that as ye were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, As I thought to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, 
saith the Lord of hosts. And I repented not. So again have I thought in these days to do well unto Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear ye not. These are the things that ye shall do. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. And love no false oath. For all these are things that I hate, saith the Lord. We'll end there at the end of verse number 17. And let's seek the Lord in prayer together and ask his help as we come to consider these verses. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that you have identified yourself as the God of your people. You don't shy away from us, but you are the one who comes to the rescue of those that are yours. And we pray that this morning as we come to consider these verses, that you would encourage our hearts greatly in what you have done for us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. My senior year of high school was not a good year for the Pell City, Alabama high school football team. The mighty Pell City Panthers were reduced to the Pell City Kittens. Our poor football team went 0-10. No wins, 10 losses. They didn't win a single game. In fact, that same year, several of us guys from the marching band challenged the football team to a game of flag football. I played quarterback for the marching band, and we won the game. Our lead tuba player was faster than anybody they had on their football team, and we had a bass drummer who was a better wide receiver than anybody that they had, and we won the game. It was a humiliating defeat for the Pell City Panthers, but quite the victory for the Pell City High School marching band. Uh, not supposed to win the football game, but we did. Victory is often elusive. Uh, many teams just can't seem to win. We sometimes joke uh, about this team or that team that they, they snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. Right? They were so close to winning the game. They, they had everything going, but self-inflicted wounds, bad plays, whatever, seemed to just plague certain teams. And they, they seem to lose every time it's on the line. Victory is hard. It's hard to win. So far from the book of Zechariah, we have seen that our God is a God of victory. Zechariah, I have said many times to you over these weeks, was a prophet of hope amid the chaos of Israel's restoration. Uh, times in Israel had been very difficult, and there was a lot of discouragement among the people. And the Lord sent Zechariah to lift up these people and to declare to them a victorious message from a victorious God, everything was going to be okay, because God was going to make all things right. He was going to fix everything. This morning, as we continue on in Zechariah, and we come to chapter 8, 
we have already seen part of the Lord's process in, in keeping his promise, in making good on his promise to turn to his people. If you remember back, the very first message that we looked at was Haggai and Zechariah together, and Haggai and Zechariah calling the people to repentance. Haggai's words were, consider your ways, consider your ways. And Zechariah's message to the people, really a theme verse of the whole book of Zechariah, turn unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. And we've looked at these visions, and these visions are a demonstration of what it looks like when God turns to his people. God makes all things right when he turns to his people. Our God is a God of hope and victory. And the Lord was turning to his people. Victory had arrived, if you will. And this morning, the title of my message is simply that word, victory victory. And I want you to see from these 17 verses what the Lord says about the victory that he has secured and established for his people. God has secured and God has established our victory. Ultimately, that victory is through the person and work of Christ, and we'll see that more later. We didn't finish reading Zechariah chapter 8, but you'll see at the very end of the chapter, it speaks of the nations laying hold, the end of verse number 23, laying hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, we will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This is a, a prophecy of, of Christ. We're not, we're not going to get to that to, to expound that. But this victory we have is a victory earned by Christ. It's a victory established by his perfect work on our behalf. Victory is ours. And so I want to show you from these 17 verses the victory that we have in Christ. Um, we'll be looking at eight very specific points here, not to worry. I know I have been accused over these couple weeks of preaching longer than Pastor Kimbrough, and that's okay. But eight points, eight brief points, and we'll be out by lunch, I promise. Number one, I want you to see in verse number two here that we have victory through God's jealousy. Victory through God's jealousy. Look what he says here in chapter 8, verse 2. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. We've already seen this theme back in the very first vision in chapter 1 and verse number 14. There the Lord said, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great jealousy. This jealousy is not a negative thing. You know, we, we more often than not use that word jealousy in that negative sense. And, and we tell people, don't be jealous. Somebody gets a new toy, and you're jealous of that new toy. Somebody gets a new car, a new house, and, and you're jealous. You want what they have. Jealousy and covetousness really are, in many ways, much of the same thing. But that's not what the Lord is saying here at all. This jealousy is a very clear evidence of God's love, his care, and his great concern for his people. If you remember when we were looking at chapter 1, I used the illustration of a marriage and how a husband and wife are jealous one for another. And that right, good, and proper jealousy 
of, of the marriage relationship keeps out intruders. It keeps others from coming in. It keeps us from seeking satisfaction in others. We have a jealousy for that one that the Lord has given to us. And, and we love our spouse. We want to care for them. We want to provide for them in every right and, and appropriate way that we can do. And it's because of that jealousy. And, and that jealousy strengthens the purity of love that we have one for another. This is what God is saying. He has a holy jealousy for his people and a jealousy that causes him to love them, to care for them, to provide for them, to protect them. And God secures a victory for his people because he's jealous for them. The Lord's not going to have his people being continually bombarded by enemies. He's not going to have his people wander away from him without him pursuing and bringing them back. He's jealous for them. We'll see in verse 8 later, they're his, we are his people. And he's jealous to have us as his. And he's, in, in that jealousy, he sovereignly is directing us and bringing into our lives that which is best for us because he's jealous for us. This was a change, if you will, from the past 70 years, the past 90 years, really. 70 years they had been in captivity. And for the past 20 years, they had been back in the land, this remnant. We, we've already seen something of the timeline of this. They've been there for about 20 years, struggling, before Haggai and Zechariah came on the scene. In the past, the Lord, it appeared, had withheld his blessing from them. But that actually was not the case at all. If you look closely at your Bible, you'll see in verse number 2, It says, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. The King James translators have chosen to translate that for us with a past tense verb. I was jealous. The Hebrew text actually has a present tense verb. And if you have a translation in your lap other than a King James, you'll read I am jealous. Uh, The ESV, the NIV, the New American Standard, the the, the modern translations all take this as a present tense verb. The Hebrew is a present tense verb. John Calvin, his translation of this text, he translates it with what we would say in English is a present perfect. He translates it, I have been jealous for Zion. And I think that really captures that present idea, and it captures the sentiment of what the Lord is communicating to his people. It's not that the Lord used to be jealous for his people in the past, and he's no longer jealous for them. That's not at all what he's communicating, which is what the past tense would lead us to understand and believe. The present tense is really the force. I'm jealous for my people. I've always been jealous for my people. Even during those 90 years when it seems as if I forsook my people, I really didn't. The captivity had been prophesied by Isaiah, had been prophesied by by Jeremiah, 
had been expounded and explained by Ezekiel in the middle of it, the Lord was not forsaking his people. He never had forsook his people. He, was, he always had been jealous for them. Even the punishment was an evidence and a manifestation of his care and concern for his people. When you spank your children, when you discipline your children, do you not love them anymore? Of course not. Why in the world do you spank them? Why in the world do you discipline them? It's because you love them. The Bible actually makes it very, very clear that if you don't discipline your child, that is evidence and that is proof that you hate your child. That's proof that you despise your child. If you let your children run amok and do whatever they want to do, you don't love them. That's what the Bible, I didn't say that, that's what the Bible says. And so God is punishing his children. He, he's, he's disciplining them from a heart that's overwhelmed with love and care and jealousy for their good. He wants what's best for his people. He's always been jealous for them. And that jealousy that the Lord has for his people is a good thing. And it's part of what secures a victory for us as his people. But we move on to verse number three, and we see here we have victory through restored faithfulness. Victory through restored faithfulness. And so you look at verse three, it says, Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion. Well, that's exactly what the Lord said he was going to do. Turn unto me, and I'll return unto you. And the Lord says, I'm doing that. I've returned unto Zion, and I'll dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Jerusalem, a city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord, the holy mountain. The implication in this verse is that Jerusalem and Mount Zion being types of the, the people of God. That's the way we understand this. They had profaned the right worship of the Lord. They had profaned truth. They had profaned holiness. They had rebelled against God. They had believed a lie. They had pursued the way of the heathen. Their reputation of truth, their reputation for holiness had been so tarnished by their sin. The Lord says, I'm returning to you, and I'm going to put all that back right again. I'm going to restore your reputation of faithfulness. I'm going to restore your, your attitude toward truth, your attitude toward holiness. The Lord was going to put that right so that others would have that view of Jerusalem and the Lord's holy mountain. Jerusalem, a city of truth, the holy mountain, a holy, or the, the mountain of the Lord, a holy mountain. Is this not true of us all? Have we all not, by our own sinfulness, by our own willful disobedience, forsaken the Lord and been unfaithful to him and not followed truth and not followed holiness in the way that the Lord has commanded us to do? And the implication here is an implied call to repentance, an implied call to come back to truth, to come back to a way of holiness. If I can beg your patience for just a moment, I want to read you a short little paragraph from John Calvin. 
Calvin says this, he says, the import of the whole of this, that when God reconciles his people to himself, he not only brings an outward blessing of an earthly kind, but also something better and far more excellent, even the renewal of the heart and mind, and that when all things are polluted and filthy, he restores true and perfect cleanness and integrity. This is what the Lord is doing when he restores the faithfulness of his people and he brings victory to his people by a return to truth and a return to holiness. We can't have victory. In the, you, you cannot have victory in the Christian life while at the same time chasing lies and worldly pleasures. You're, you're just not going to have a victorious Christian life believing a lie and pursuing your own, your own agenda. We're called to lives of truth and holiness. And the truth of who we are and the holiness that God demands of us is revealed to us in the scriptures. We have that in the Bible. And we're called to follow after that, to return to that. So victory is found through a renewed faithfulness that the Lord will establish in the heart. So if we come to verse 4, we see a, a third aspect of our victory, and that is victory through divine protection. Victory through divine protection. Look at verse 4, thus saith the Lord of hosts, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. For a very large part of Israel's history, they had known war and chaos. They lived, in, in a sense, in constant fear of attack from their enemies. Part of that was because of their own sinfulness. You know well enough that when the children of Israel went into the promised land and they defeated Jericho, there was sin in the camp. They had trouble with Ai. They sorted that out. They defeated Ai. And nation after nation, they went. The Lord had commanded them to go and clean house, to, to destroy all these nations. You know the story of the Gibeonites? The Gibeonites come, they lie. They didn't seek counsel from the Lord, and they entered into a league with the Gibeonites, and they had trouble with the Gibeonites the whole rest of the time. And, and there were other nations that they didn't destroy. It's a picture of the Christian life and us not rooting out sin and sin that remains, and it continues to be a plague. And these nations that they didn't obey God at the beginning and get out, these nations plagued Israel the whole time. Constant, for the most part, constant war. There were seasons of peace here and there, but for the most part, constant war. But the Lord is saying that through his divine protection, he's going to bring peace to his people like they have never known before. Peace like they had never known. The verse talks to us about old men and old women. These are people so old, they have to use a staff. They have to use a cane to get around. They're that old. Old men and women that, instead of dying in war, instead of dying in the aftermath of the chaos of war and the troubles, they're dying of old age because the Lord's protected his people. And then it says that there's going to be little boys and girls playing in the streets. Now, this is way different than what Jeremiah had said. 
Jeremiah, before the captivity, he told the people that death was going to come into Jerusalem. And, and children would be killed in the streets. Well, when Nebuchadnezzar came in, that, that happened. And this is very different. Instead of children being killed in the streets, now children are going to be laughing and playing in the streets because of the peace and the prosperity that the Lord has brought to his people. No mom in their right mind lets their kid play outside when there's imminent danger. You don't let your kids go, you know, you, you don't go play in the street. We are very careful of our kids that play outside. You know, don't go past that big tree. Don't get close to the road. We, we want to protect our children. And here there's peace in such a way that the moms and dads let their kids play outside with no fear of death, no fear of attack, because the Lord has brought peace and brought protection. He will give peace to his people even from that great opposition that comes from without. Now, we don't know the fullness of that yet. The, the church is still plagued on every side. And we don't know the full fulfillment of this, but we will. In the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwells righteousness, we'll know all that peace and protection that the Lord has promised. But until then, we can seek for that. We can, we're told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We're not talking about the city way over there in Israel on the other side of the world. We're talking about the peace of God's people, the holy Jerusalem, the holy city of God, the kingdom of God. We're to pray for that peace and the Lord's protection on it. But we have victory through the Lord's protection. We move on to verse number 6, and we see a fourth thing, a fourth aspect of our victory, and that is victory through, through strengthened faith. Victory through strengthened faith. Look at verse 6. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in mine eyes, saith the Lord of hosts? The word marvelous here really is a word that means something that's unbelievable, something that's too difficult. If it's too difficult in your eyes, does that mean that it really is too difficult for the Lord? Well, the verse doesn't answer the question, but we all know the answer to that question. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? The youngest person in this room knows the answer to that question. No. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. The Lord is going to strengthen the faith of his people by doing something for them that they previously thought was impossible to be done. And God said, I'm going to do it. In one sense, regardless of your lack of faith, I'm still going to do it. He's going to strengthen faith by doing the impossible. Is God's power limited by your comprehension of his power? Anybody that would say yes to that question, I would submit to you as just simply an idolater. If God's power is limited by your comprehension of his power, then you worship a God that you have created in your own mind. You worship a God that you can manipulate. You worship a God who is smaller than you are. And that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is bigger than we are. 
Look at Romans chapter 4. Turn over to Romans 4. This is a passage you're all very familiar with, but I want you to see what the Lord communicates to us here. Paul is writing about Abraham. He's using Abraham as, as this prime example, really of this very truth, the Lord strengthening the faith of his people. Romans 4, look at verse 19. So speaking of Abraham, and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Sarah was 90 years old. Verse 20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. You see, Abraham's perception of the power of God was not limited by his own understanding. His own understanding would lead him to say that a man 100 years old with a wife that's 90 years old, you don't have kids. That's just biology. That's just the way it works. You don't have kids. But God said, you're going to have a son. And Abraham believed God. And God made good on his promise. And we know the story. If I can quote John Calvin again, he says, If we wish to pull up unbelief by the roots from our hearts, we must begin at this point to raise up our thoughts above the world, yea, to bid adieu to our own judgment, and simply to embrace what God promises. We, we bid adieu to our own judgments, to our own understanding. We're told to lean not on our own understanding. But we simply embrace what God has said. And God has said he will do for his people what needs to be done. Verses 7 and 8 demonstrates the great thing that God has promised to do. God's power, you see in verse 7, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and, and from the west country. One of these great things that God is, that God is going to do that the people thought was impossible, was he's going to gather in from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. The East Country and the West Country, uh, it's a figure of speech, obviously, the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. As far as one direction you can get and as far as the other direction as you can get. God's power extends to all of those things. God is far more powerful than our puny little minds can comprehend. Our expectations of what God can do should never be limited to our own judgments. But so often we are. So often they are. And so often we're faithless because we view God through the lens of our own understanding. We view what he will do, what he's able to do, what he might do. We view it through our own understanding. Even our prayers are corrupted with this. We, we pray and we ask the Lord for things with an unbelieving heart. And we don't really, really expect an answer to the big things that we pray for. Our faith is far more strengthened when we pray for someone who has strep throat to feel better. Because what happens to people with strep throat? They feel better. I mean, can I speak as a fool here? We don't have to pray for that. 
People get better from strep throat. Now, I'm not saying don't pray for people with strep throat. But that's, that's one of those kinds of things that we, we believe that God's going to answer that prayer because people with strep throat always get better from strep throat. But when we pray for the Lord to save this person in our family or work in this situation or that situation, well, we often don't see those things play out. And our faith is very, very small. But the Lord says he's going to bring victory through strengthening our faith. He's going to encourage us in the weakness of our faith. One of the reasons, I've said this recently in another message, one of the reasons that we don't receive very much from the hand of God is because, frankly, we just don't expect very much from the hand of God. We don't get much because we don't anticipate much. We don't expect much. Can the Lord give us better things? Of course he can. You know, we've been talking just kind of casually. We have no official thing going here. But we've been talking casually among ourselves, some of us, that, you know, what's a million-dollar building project to the Lord? You know, a million dollars to my bank account? (laughs) Forget it. But but seriously, what's a million dollars to the Lord? What's property in a new building to the mind of God. It's nothing. It's nothing. But do we believe such a thing can even happen? The very concept of a million dollars would throw you back in your chair. It's too marvelous in our eyes. But does that mean it's too marvelous for the Lord to do such a thing? Of course it's not. I challenge you to believe that the Lord can do more than what we see right now. I challenge you to believe that. The Lord can do more than what you see right now. Short-sighted unbelief too often gets in the way of faith. The Lord can do more than what we know and trust Him for it. Verse 8 gives us another aspect of our victory, a fifth aspect, and that is victory through a restored covenant. That's what we looked at really during our our prayer meeting time, the end of verse 8. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. And I'm not going to re-preach my prayer meeting message, but you'll know I said then that that promise of Scripture is traced, that that promise right here is traced throughout the Scriptures. It's... It's repeated in almost those exact same words in five or six other books of the Bible. The concept of it permeates Scripture. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Because God is a covenant-keeping God. He's a God who keeps his promises. You see, by their sin, the people had broken that covenant. By their sin, they had strayed away from the Lord. But they didn't stop being the Lord's people. God was still their God. God is renewing this covenant to them and saying, I'm going to bring you back to myself. You are are mine. You always have been mine. But you're going to be mine, and I'm going to make it such that you call me yours as well. And this covenant reestablished. God had never broken his side of the covenant. God had always been very faithful to his side of the covenant. 
because he told them way back with Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, if you stray from me, you're going to be punished. I'm going to take you out of this land of promise that I've given to you. That was all part of the covenant promises. And the people sinned, and God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He took them out of the land. He was very long-suffering with them. They sinned for a long, long time before he took them out. But eventually he did. You, you read the very end of Second Chronicles, the very last couple verses there of Second Chronicles, and basically the Lord is communicating to his people, you left me with no choice. You sinned. I, I told you I was going to punish you. You left me with no choice. And so I had to punish you. And, and he did. He did the very thing. He, he kept his part of the covenant. And now God is declaring that his people are going to know great victory by a restoration of that covenant relationship. And his people are going to know what it is to live in truth and righteousness. They are going to start fulfilling their part of the covenant. You know, we will know victory. You'll know victory in the Christian life when you are walking with the Lord, when you are pursuing truth and righteousness as the Lord has ordained. And you're a fool to expect victory when you're not walking with the Lord. You're crazy to expect victory in your life. If you're not doing what the Lord has very clearly commanded you to do, when you neglect the Lord, when you neglect the worship of the Lord, neglecting the Lord's day, the Lord's table, the Lord's people, seeking your own rather than God's, you're crazy to think you're going to know victory in the Lord's blessing. You have no reason to expect it if you're walking contrary to the Lord. But yet the opposite is true. If we're walking with the Lord, we have every reason to expect victory. We move on to verse 9. We see a sixth aspect of our victory, and that is victory through diligent labor. Victory through diligent labor. Verse 9 and 10, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong. Uh, skip down to verse 10, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. Sorry, I skipped a verse. Verse 9, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, ye that hear in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets. Um, I'm sorry. I messed up something in my notes on my page, and I can't find the verse in the Bible that I'm looking for. I have it typed here, but I have the wrong reference in my notes. But he repeats that phrase, let your hands be strong twice. That's the point that I want to make to you. And one of the main reasons that the Lord had punished his people is because the people had not let their hands be strong for the Lord's work. You know, we Remember, I, I referenced back what we've looked at already in the book of Haggai. Haggai rebuked the people of God. He rebuked them because they weren't working for the Lord as their top priority. They were so busy, engaged in their own stuff, building their own houses, increasing their own wealth, and not serving the Lord, basically an issue of their priorities all out of line. And Haggai calls them on it. And he tells them, consider your ways, consider what you're doing. The Lord demands that you put him first. 
You know, we, we can fast forward about 100 years, and we, Nehemiah is on the scene. The temple's up, and now they're building the walls. And you know from the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah speaks about the people having a mind to work. Their, their hand was to the plow, as it were. Everybody was together pushing the same direction. There was a strengthened labor for the Lord and for the Lord's kingdom. There's victory. And the people of God rallying together for the Lord's cause, for the Lord's purpose, to strengthen the Lord's kingdom. Before, the people had, almost for 20 years, for 18 of them anyway, they just kind of been spinning their wheels trying to get ahead. And they weren't making any traction. They weren't making any progress. Haggai says that the Lord himself was purposefully frustrating their efforts because of their priorities being so messed up. And there was no progress. They were just spinning their wheels. Zechariah is telling them that part of their victory will be accomplished by them putting their hand to the plow, by them putting their hands to work, to labor. Now, don't misunderstand. We... We already have looked at chapter 4. And chapter 4 is that vision of the candlestick and the two olive trees. And, and the whole imagery there is the supply of power that comes from the Holy Spirit. It's not by might nor by power, but it's by my Spirit, saith the Lord. Everything that's going to be accomplished is going to be accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit working in his people. But the Lord's people are going to work. Even in chapter 4, it says, Zerubbabel, by his hands, this house will be built. Now, okay, fine, the Lord built it. We know that. We know it was the power of the Holy Spirit behind the whole thing. But the Lord uses means. The Lord uses his people. And the Lord has called his people to go to work. Let your hands be strong. Uh, one of the phrases I like to say, the Bible tells us that we need faith to move mountains. But the faith that moves mountains sometimes picks up a shovel and starts digging. There's work to be done in the kingdom of God. And we can't shy away from that. Each one of us has a task to do. We're all called to different aspects of the work in the kingdom. We're not all called to do the same thing but we're all called to work for the Lord in some way or another, in some capacity, in some facet. We're not called upon to build a spiritual structure. I'm, I'm sorry. We're not called upon to build a physical structure. Now, Zerubbabel was literally called on to build a building out of stone and wood. Later, Nehemiah was called upon to build a literal wall. That's not what we're called to build in, in a literal sense. But we're called to work in the spiritual field of the kingdom of God. And there's a work to do. You know, as dads, we have the responsibility of building up the spiritual walls around our own homes and, and protecting our own homes from the attack of the enemy. There's a very real sense in which the spiritual pulse of your home is your responsibility. That's one of the tasks that God has given to fathers to husbands and fathers in the home 
as husbands, we are responsible to protect our marriage and to love our wife as Christ has loved the church. As a wife, you are responsible for the, the spiritual welfare of your home as well in, in a different way under your husband, under his leadership, under his guidance. But your dealings with the children and all that, there's great responsibility of building up a spiritual house. And the Lord has said there will be great victory to come as we put our hands to work, to work for him. A seventh thing, two more points here, a seventh thing. Uh, look at verse 12. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. This point obviously flows out of this last one, of, of our hands being put to work. But there's an abundant prosperity. That's what we have here. Victory through abundant prosperity is number seven. Victory through abundant prosperity. The Lord is not here really talking about prosperity in the sense of, of wealth. That's how we really in a, a short-sighted way view it. But that's really not the, the, the end goal. That's really not what he's talking about. The Lord is concerned about far more in your life than your bank account or your house or what car you drive. The Lord is concerned about the whole person. There's, there's a, a spiritual prosperity as well as a physical one. But you might make a note in, in your Bible if you're one prone to write in your Bible or if you're taking notes there at verse number 12. It says, For the seed shall be prosperous, that word prosperous is actually a Hebrew word that you all have heard before and you know something about. It's the word shalom. The word shalom is a traditional Hebrew greeting and salutation. As Jews would meet one another, they, to this day, they would say shalom. And when they leave one another, they would say shalom. It's a word that means peace. Just, just on its surface, it, it means peace. It, their shalom is really substantively the same thing as when we say to one another, the Lord bless, the Lord bless you, right? And, you know, you, I end a lot of my emails that way. May the Lord bless, Eric Bowman, as a, as a salutation rather than, you know, sincerely. It means the same thing. But it, it means more than just this generic peace. Really, the idea behind that word is may the Lord bless you in every conceivable way that you can be blessed. In every possible way that God can bless another human being, I want God to do that for you. That's the idea, really, behind this. And so when it says the seed shall be prosperous, obviously, it's the planting of the seed and the vine growing up and, and etc. But this is a reversal of what God had already communicated to his people through Haggai. Remember in Haggai we saw that the Lord had purposefully frustrated the growth of their crops. He had frustrated the breeding of their animals. He had frustrated their prosperity because their priorities were all messed up. And the Lord says, I'm removing all that frustration. And now you're going to plant crops. Man, you're going to see barley like you've never seen it in your life. 
you're going to have more sheep and goats and cows running around than you can deal with. You're going to be prosperous. It's as if, I use the illustration, I was describing some of this to Greg yesterday, what I was preaching on today, and I said, you know, Haggai says that the Lord grabbed the spigot and he kind of turned it down a little bit. And now it's as if the Lord is saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm turning it back up to full blast. Right? The, the full blast of the blessing of God is what he's, he's, he's saying here. This is victory through an abundant prosperity that the Lord gives to his people. The more the Lord's people prosper, the more everybody prospers. I'm not preaching on economics, but that really is God's economic system. The more the people of God prosper, the more everybody prospers. And the Lord would have his people to prosper. But one last thing, verse 16. That is victory through humble obedience. Victory through humble obedience. These are the things that you shall do. Here you go. Four things. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. Let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. And love no false oath. For all these are things that I hate, saith the Lord. Now, here the Lord's listed out four things for us. There's a partial list that represents the whole. But really what the Lord has communicated here is really a summary of that second table of the law. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it. Love thy neighbor as thyself. And that really is what is communicated here with these four things. It is a summation of the whole second table of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. We're called to humble obedience. An obedience that is recognizable. Are we not told that we are to do good works? That others might see our good works? And as a result of that, glorify our Father which is in heaven. We are to be people that live as much as lies within us, live peaceably with all men. That's what God has called us to do. We're called to be people that speak truth to our neighbor. We're not to be liars. We're not to deceive those that we come in contact with. We're to be people whose word is sure and trustworthy. We're to execute judgment, the judgment of truth and, and peace. We're not to be people that cause conflict. We're not be, to be people that promote chaos. We're not to be of confusion. God's not the author of confusion, and his people ought not be confusing. His people ought be clear and, and straightforward in our yea, yea, and our nay, nay. We don't imagine evil in our hearts against our neighbor. Love thinketh no evil, and we're to manifest that love and we, we don't love a false oath. We're true. We're right. We're honest. We're trustworthy. And this whole second table of the law is how we are to live our lives. I began this morning by telling you about my poor little high school football team. 
I never was on the football team. I played baseball. We always went to the state playoffs. Our poor little football team, they were pitiful. They, they didn't win very many games. But life is not a football game. But life definitely does have its ups and downs. The people of God in Zechariah's day, they may have had more downs than ups, and that might be the street you live on, more downs than ups. You may have had a hard row to hoe, as it were. But Zechariah is telling this group of people that the Lord was going to turn to them in a way that was victorious in a way that was going to mean their advancement, in a way that was going to mean their prosperity. And the Lord was going to do good things for his people. I don't know how you would characterize your life if you've known more ups or or more downs. I think if we were all really just honest, I think we would all all have to say we, we really have known more ups. We're blessed people. You know, we, we've had, all of us have had difficulties in our life. We've all had troubles. But really, for the most part, as far as I know of folks in this congregation, the Lord has spared us from the major catastrophes of life that, that we can tell stories about from so many other people that we know. You know, we hear very sad stories of many different situations. We don't have a lot of that. You know, we have roof over our heads, food on the table, We've known the Lord's provisions in many, many, many ways. But I want to give you some insight into my own heart and what has driven my study here in the book of Zechariah. And it's this question, do you want more? Do you not want more? Well, what do I mean by more? I literally mean everything that God can give me. I want more. And is that your heart? I mentioned last week that there's such a fine line between contentment and complacency. We all ought to be content with what the Lord has provided for us. But we ought never be complacent. There is a right and a holy discontentment. Dr. Paisley is famous for saying quite often, I've heard him say it many times before he passed away, that the difference between a rut and a grave is really just a matter of depth. The difference between a rut and a grave. We are so often prone to falling into a rut. And we get stuck with the same old, same old, day after day, week after week, month after month, and eventually it turns into year after year. And, you know, we talk about this at New Year's, do we not? You make your resolutions and they last to like the 12th of January. Right? They might make it to February. Right? You buy a treadmill, and by February, man, you got your towels and your dirty clothes hanging on the thing. We get stuck in the mundane. We get stuck in the rut. 
But I've come to believe there has to be more. There has to be more. And I think God has promised us more. This victory that the Lord has communicated us through Zechariah, I believe is a victory that we can pray for. I believe it's a victory we can hope for. In that biblical definition of the word hope, I believe it's a vision that we can long for. I believe it's a victory that we can know because it's a victory that's been secured for us through Christ. And may we all be challenged and encouraged that the Lord has more for us. He has more than what we know now. I might not know what it is, but I know it's more than this. And may the Lord challenge us, uh, challenge us to pray for more, and through praying for more, expect more. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you that we understand from your word that you aim to bless your people. And we pray that you, in time, would make us see what that blessing looks like. We pray primarily for a spiritual advancement in every heart. Uh, That is such our desperate need. We need sin to be removed, and we need holiness to be increased, and we pray that you would work that in each one of us. Whatever the more is that you have, we pray that you would as we were singing, take us to higher ground and make us not content to live in the valley, but we pray that you would take us higher. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.